This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. In 1999, a team of climate scientists published a paper showing global temperature records over the past 1,000 years, illustrated by what has come to be known as the hockey stick graph. Little did I realize that with the publication of those papers, whether I liked it or not, I was going to find myself at the center of this raging societal debate about climate change. That's Dr. Michael Mann, one of the authors of the paper. Following the release of the report, Mann found himself under attack by climate change skeptics and conservative politicians bent on discrediting his work. If we could just find an email that would embarrass Mike Mann, then the entire weight of evidence for climate change would come crashing down like a house of cards. Climate Wars, a view from the trenches, up next on Climate One. How can a hockey stick help us understand the reality of global warming? Welcome to Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats, are recorded before a live audience and hosted by Greg Dalton. Picture a hockey stick lying on its side with the blade on the right pointing up. That's what a graph of the Earth's temperature over the past millennium looks like. Until about 1900, it's essentially flat. Then it suddenly shoots up, right about the time of increased industrialization and the advent of fossil fuels. It's a pretty undeniable illustration of how human activity has influenced global warming. The so-called hockey stick papers, published in 1999, ignited an assault on the science of climate change that still rages to this day. But lead author Michael Mann hasn't backed off on his mission to educate the public on the threat of global warming. Mann is a distinguished professor of atmospheric science at Penn State University and director of the Earth System Science Center. He is also this year's recipient of the Stephen Schneider Award for Outstanding Climate Science Communication, presented by Climate One. Our other guest today is Jonathan Foley, Executive Director of the California Academy of Sciences. Here's Greg Dalton, speaking first with Michael Mann. A lot of scientists went into uh, any kind of science, climate science or otherwise, for the work. And you started to become a public figure, which was not part of the bargain when you first went into it. And how did Steve Schneider help you with that uh, public spotlight as part of the job? Yeah, and of course, Steve was one of the first scientists to, to find himself um, uh, at the center of uh, efforts to discredit the science and to attack the science, because Steve early on uh, spoke out about um, the reality and the threat of climate change. And so I was fortunate enough to have folks like Steve who I could turn to uh, for advice. And indeed, when we published the the hockey stick uh, papers in, the in 1998 and 1999, um, little did I realize that with the publication of those papers, whether I liked it or not, I was going to find myself at the center of this raging societal debate about climate change and, and what to do about it. And when the hockey stick became this iconic graph in the climate change debate, uh, I found myself at the very center of uh, efforts to discredit the science, uh, in part by discrediting me personally. Um, and I talked to Steve, and he explained, look, you know, 
what this means is that you're having an impact. Understand this isn't about you. Understand that this is about you're hurting their client (laughs) of fossil fuel interests who are not happy about the implications of your science. And I I think if it were not for that tutelage and that support, I'm not sure I would have made it through that period. Around uh, 2005, Joe Barton, a Republican congressman from Texas, there were some some hearings. Take us to that place and tell us that story. Barton, uh, back in 2005, um, as the chair of the House Energy and Commerce Committee, sent uh, essentially a subpoena to me, uh, demanding all of my personal emails and all of my, you know, every scrap of paper, back of a napkin uh, calculation that I ever did throughout my entire career uh, based on the straw man notion that it was our our hockey stick papers that uh, formed the sole basis for concern about human influence on climate, which of course is is absolutely silly. If there never was a hockey stick, if there never was the dozens of other studies that have come to the same conclusion as our hockey stick um, paper, uh, we would still have overwhelming evidence, multiple lines of evidence that tell us that climate change is real and human cause and already a problem. But because it was an iconic graph, um, it was easy to cynically sort of create this straw man that the entire weight of evidence and the entire reason for concern was the hockey stick graph. And if we could just find an email that would embarrass Mike Mann, that would you know prove that in fact he had uh, you know invented this out of uh, thin air, um, then the entire uh, weight. Uh, of evidence for climate change would come crashing down like a house of cards. Of course, it's ridiculous and it's cynical to believe that. But that that was it, it was sort of part of this effort. If you could take an icon, uh, be it polar bears in the Arctic discrediting the science there, um, Al Gore making it seem like it's all just about Al Gore and his electricity bills, um, or the hockey stick. Um, if you can convince people that the entire weight of evidence depends on this one uh, strand, then then. And it's it's a way to cynically try to um, sow doubt and confusion. Uh, Republicans came to your defense. Well, that's right. And if it were not for the fact that Sherwood Bollert uh, came out um, in our defense and John McCain, who uh, co-authored an op-ed denouncing uh, Joe Barton's witch hunt against me and my colleagues, if it were not for the fact that there were influential Republicans who came out at a time when Republicans c- controlled both houses of Congress and the presidency. If, if that hadn't happened, then who knows you know, what we would have been in store for. So um, it, it's important to realize that there are politicians of, of good faith on both sides of the aisle. I think it's something that we can hope we see more of um, in the years ahead because, of course, we've seen a disappearance of that good faith in recent years. These days, the, uh, the Trump administration is touting energy dominance for America. And a White House daily briefing, Energy Secretary Rick Perry made the case for why that is important. Let's listen. President Trump wants America to achieve energy dominance by utilizing our abundant resources um, for good, both here and abroad. I think an energy dominant America means self-reliant, means a secure nation, free from the geopolitical turmoil of other nations who seek to use energy as an economic weapon. An energy-dominant America will export to markets around the world, increasing our global leadership and our influence. 
That's Energy Secretary Rick Perry. Uh, John Foley, let's get you in on this. Uh, secure resources, domestic resources to power the American economy. Sounds like a good idea. What's wrong with that? Yeah, it does sound like a good idea. Just uh, he wasn't pointing to the right sources. Uh, you know, like, uh, for example, wind and solar and things like that work perfectly well and are actually cheaper than fossil fuels today. The market is speaking loudly that fossil fuels are, are going the way of their predecessors, the dinosaurs, and we have to you know, invest in future technologies. That's where America can actually lead, and that's what we're really talking about here. It isn't about sacrificing you know, some economic prosperity to solve the climate problem. It's actually building in new economic prosperity that has actually grown in our communities, in our own nation, with our own technologies. Uh, that, that's what we don't get. I mean, what, what uh, Secretary Perry uh, is really talking about is winding the clock back to old technologies that the rest of the world is leaving behind. And so we have a choice to make. Do we want to be left behind or do we want to be leading the global economy? And that's the time to choose. And he's choosing the wrong one. And at the institution you lead, the, the California Academy of Sciences, you've taken a step and in, in even moving the institution and some of its investments away from those, those old uh, you know, fossil fuel resources. So tell about that and what, what impact and what consequences you had from <laughs> divesting at the Cal Academy. Yeah, so we're the uh, only museum on Earth, I think, uh, that is fully divesting from fossil fuels. Um, no other museum has announced that they're doing this, to my knowledge. Uh, and it wasn't without controversy, but um, and we lost one major donor over it, which is kind of a bad day for me <laughs> sometimes. Um, we're passing the hat around later, if you like. But um, <clears throat> No, but it's... Um, uh, but it was the right thing to do. And it wasn't, you know, um, some of my board members at first said, you know, is this a political thing or not? I'm like, no, it's just we are a science institution. This is something we should stand up for. And we're, more importantly, a public institution. Michael Mann, we've seen the what, Center for Disease Control, you know, say, have certain lists that they can't set science based, et cetera. What impact is this sort of, uh, you know, changing the language? Uh, it was one thing to sanitize uh, government websites. It's another thing to have kind of uh, not quite burned books, but banned phrases and words. What, right. what, what effect is that having in the scientific community? Well, like John says, um, it, it's not the explicit censorship that is uh, the biggest problem here. It's the self-censorship that comes with that. When scientists think that if they mention terms like climate change or sea level rise in the abstracts of their proposals, um, that uh, the proposal, uh, you know, a, a program manager who might want to do the right thing, but who fears retribution uh, from above, uh, may choose not to fund that proposal. They're going to have to defend it. They're going to have to defend it to the superiors, ultimately to political um, appointees and operatives. And so you get this sort of self-censorship where scientists themselves stop using the appropriate language to describe the research that they want to do. Um, and, you know, pretty soon uh, they're shying away from that research. Um, they're, they're moving away from, from the research uh, that they perceive as controversial. Uh, in, and what you, what you lose is the sort of, um, you know, hard-hitting scientific research that's necessary if we are going to inform assessments of, of risk. I mean, here we are talking about what is potentially the greatest threat um, that we face as a civilization. And that's not just me. That's not just scientists. That's our national security community uh, telling us that this is an existential threat. And if we decide that we can no longer do research that informs the decision-making process and how we deal with that threat and, and how we become more resilient in the face of these challenges, everybody loses out. Society loses out. Um, as John said, we, we can't afford to allow that to happen. There's too much at stake.
We don't know a lot about the budget. This is uh, always a moving target these days. Congress never seems to agree on a budget. They just kind of kick it down the can for a couple, few weeks or months. But Michael Mann, do we know if the funding to the National Science Foundation, to the major scientific institution in this country, is the funding drying up? Is, is, it, is the resources drying up for the kinds of research that we need to have to understand where this climate is going? Yeah, well, right now we don't have a budget. We're on continuing resolutions, so funding managers are afraid to commit uh, new funds to, to, to fund science. And so, first of all, just in this atmosphere of, uh, of uncertainty where we don't have a science budget, uh, it's def- very difficult uh, for uh, funding managers to, to make the longer-term decisions that they need to make about uh, funding of, of basic research. And, of course, there has been a threat on the part of the administration and congressional Republicans um, to uh, substantially decrease uh, uh, funding specifically for climate change. Um, in, in many cases, uh, there has actually been an effort to to defund sub areas of science that deal specifically with uh, climate change um, at the National Science Foundation, at NASA, at NOAA, at the funding uh, agencies, um, without realizing that once again it. It is, you know, their stakeholders. Um, it is the insurance industry. It is farmers, the agricultural industry. It is all of us who stand to lose out if we don't have reliable information to make decisions um, uh, about, you know, basic decisions. John Foley, there's lots of talk about how cities and states can fill the gap, the policy void created by the federal retreat or federal going in a different direction. But this is one area where cities and states don't have the billions of dollars that the federal government does. They can't step in and fill that funding gap the way they can in other places. Is that fair? Uh, I think it's from, uh, definitely from the science point of view. Like the, the, there's no replacing the federal government in terms of investing in long-term R&D, uh, the satellites that we fly across the planet to monitor our environment, our climate, our weather. In, you know, this matters when a, when a hurricane's barreling towards your state, by the way. Uh, I remember a story by Jane Livchenko, who used to be the head of NOAA, when she was t- explaining to a, a congressional um, member of Congress, I won't see what party, you can guess, um, but that, you know, why we needed to fund weather satellites. He looked at her and says, well, I, we don't need to pay for weather satellites. I just need to turn on the weather channel. Right. <laughs> a member of Congress actually said that and not realizing, of course, I hope you all know that the weather channel gets that data from NOAA satellites. So this is, this is undermining the investment in just not, in everything. But where I think cities and states can help lead, though, is uh, perhaps on like, you know, renewable energy, on energy efficiency, on buildings, building codes, transportation. A lot of those decisions on climate solutions actually are governed sometimes even more at the local, state, and county levels, or by corporations, or by you know, multinationals. Uh, so I think that you know, there's a very complex environment here, but science is getting hammered. And if we don't know what the problem is, it's very hard to engineer a good solution to it. Michael Mann, uh, speaking of weather, you were boarding a plane one time, and the pilot asked to speak to you. Tell us that. That's right. I thought I was in trouble. Not because um, you, were, you were drunk and disorderly. No, no. you were just on the plane. <laughs> no, it was the, the flight attendant um, came back uh, and asked me, are you Michael Mann? And I didn't know if I should answer yes or no. <laughs> um, and the pilot had recognized me um, and, and wanted to talk with me. Um, and in fact, he was convinced that he is seeing the 
impact of climate change um, on aviation, on turbulence in the atmosphere. And he was quite informed. It turns out that he follows, you know, the, the climate literature and the blogs. Um, and, and he knew, sort of knew what he was talking about. And he was absolutely convinced that, that he is seeing changes in sort of uh, turbulence that, um, that are unusual in his career and, and that he, he thinks are a manifestation of climate change. And it's consistent with what we expect. We do expect more turbulent energy in the atmosphere as it warms up. Um, and so, and I th to me, that really drove home, not just the fact that I have to be careful what I do and say, because people do actually recognize me now and then, um, but, but it, it, it really conveyed uh, to me in a very profound way the fact that the, the impacts of climate change are no longer subtle. People are feeling them and seeing them in their daily lives, and I think that's making a huge difference when we try to communicate to this pub to, uh, the science and its implications to the public. They sort of get it now at a level that I don't think they did in the past. It's hitting every, yeah, as I said, everything, everywhere that we do and touch pretty much every day. Recently, there's been a lot of talk about the extreme cold in the eastern United States, warm in the west, warm in the other parts of the world. So explain to us how that is related to, to climate change. You know, because you always hear this, oh, it's cold, so climate change isn't happening. Right, and it's, and it's really a, it's a nuanced um, issue. And of course, when you talk about it, when you talk about the possibility that cold extremes could be impacted by climate change, the critics naturally say, oh, look, there they are. They're, it doesn't matter if it's cold or it's warm. They're blaming everything on climate change. And in fact, I, I sort of walked into that a bit when I wrote a, a blog uh, about the extreme uh, winter weather and the role that climate change uh, might be having. And uh, Al Gore tweeted a link to my piece. And of course, uh, <laughs> and then uh, the feeding frenzy ensued. Um, and, and it is, you know, it does require you to get into some nuances. And it's so difficult in, you know, today's, um, you know, media environment to have nuanced conversations about, about uh, science. But, um, but what it has to do with is the fact that something Californians are very familiar with, um, this uh, resilient, ridiculously resilient ridge. Many of you have heard this term, um, this tendency for high pressure um, over the West Coast, California, in the winter that's been forcing the storms north, northward, denying the rainfall and the snowfall that California relies upon for its water resources, giving us, you know, a warm weather, um, which can seem nice, but it also means that California isn't getting the rainfall that it needs. And that particular pattern of the jet stream has become more prevalent in, in recent years. Um, there's a, a colleague of ours, Noah Diffenbaugh at Stanford University, who's done some really uh, good research um, looking at how climate change may be impacting that particular pattern of the jet stream, where the jet stream sort of veers north, denying the west coast of those storms, and then crashes down in the east, giving us that extreme cold weather that we've been seeing. And there's an emerging body of evidence that um, it sort of speaks to the issue of surprises, things that we didn't understand, that we didn't know were in store. Um, we are learning that there are aspects of climate change that we didn't really understand um, that are leading to impacts that we would not have expected. And in this case, the dramatic decrease in sea ice in the Arctic Ocean uh, may be impacting the behavior of the Northern Hemisphere jet stream. A good friend of mine, uh, Susan Joy Hassel, um, likes to say that what happens in the Arctic doesn't stay in the Arctic. Um, and, and, and clearly, we are seeing that. The, the decrease in Arctic sea ice that might seem 
seem distant, and we might, might think that you know, it impacts nobody but polar bears, and we might think that it can be dismissed, maybe impacting weather down here in California and uh, along the east coast of the U.S., um, once again, in a way that isn't subtle, in a way that's pretty profound, in a way that we're, we're actually feeling and seeing. John Foley, how's this going to affect food production and other things? In terms of food production, I mean, um, climate is intimately connected to everything we do, whether it's our food or our water or even our energy systems and our health, but approximately right to food. I mean, yeah, the, um, we're seeing uh, increasing problems with uh, food production as the world's population and diets become more and more demanding for food production. And a lot of that is being caused by climate instability or long-term climate change, uh, just at a point when we can't afford that. So for the first time in a long time, the number of global hunger, uh, hungry people has been going up again, which is uh, kind of reversing a lot of progress we've been making. So it's not an immediate, you know, all-out emergency, but it's something that we need to really, really watch, uh, especially among the most vulnerable people. There are about 800 million people in the world right now who are food insecure, which uh, mainly means they don't have the economic ability to go out in the market and get the food they need. But those are the people who always suffer first. And that's the incredible irony of this, is the, it's the global rich, people like ourselves, who are emitting the gases or causing most of this problem, but it's always the global poor, even in our own country, but of course across the world, they're always paying the price first. And that's really why this is ultimately a, really a moral dilemma, just as much as a scientific and engineering one. This is Climate One. Our guests today are Michael Mann, Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Science at Penn State University, and Jonathan Foley of the California Academy of Sciences. Here's Greg Dalton. One other recent impact that's been in the news a lot uh, is fires. So, uh, you know, Michael Mann, how are California fires or fires anywhere uh, in the American West connected to climate? Well, it's not rocket science, right? Hot weather, you evaporate the moisture you have, dry winters, little rainfall, little snowfall. You don't have that snow melt in the spring. Um, those factors come together with, you know, the effect of, of warmer winters, allowing pests like pine bark beetles to, to move into regions that they hadn't inhabited before. We're seeing all these things come together and forgive the, you know, the use of the expression, a perfect storm of consequences for wildfire in the western U.S. We've seen, I believe, a near tripling of the extent of wildfire over the last 30 years. Um, and there's a strong climate change signal in that. Uh, we're seeing one of the unfortunate and more subtle consequences of that. Um, drier, uh, you know, summers, uh, longer dry seasons may be associated with punctuated periods of very high rainfall. A warmer atmosphere holds more moisture. When the rain does fall, it falls in heavier amounts. And what's playing out, uh, what has been playing out over the last week in Southern California, where uh, the drought and the wildfire that destroyed the vegetation, um, that uh, created conditions that were ripe for these um, these these landslides, um, as we saw this very heavy rainfall last week. Uh, John Foley, you talk about the impacts uh, uh, on the on poor people and the people who are hit first and worst mm -hmm. uh, contributed least to this. Can you think of a time when you were moved to tears by seeing a climate impact or thinking about a climate impact? That's a, that's a really interesting story. I think it's one that scientists need to tell more often is why they do the work that they do. Um, 
maybe I'm, I'm kind of going around your question, but one of the things that I think is so important is when we were in this kind of war on science, and I hate to use that word, but there seems to be one, we scientists often think we're in a fact battle, but we're not. We're in a battle of symbols and narrative. They wanted to destroy you and your symbol of the hockey stick because it was a powerful part of the narrative. And uh, to counter that, I think we have to, as scientists, embrace the humanity of this and tell a counter-narrative that says, wait, this is about real people, people you love, people you care about. It's about issues of you know, fairness and safety and security. And yeah, it's, it's just absolutely heartbreaking to see some of the disasters that are befalling the planet, whether it's from climate change or deforestation or so many of these linked global environmental problems. Uh, yeah, it, it hits me very, very hard uh, personally to think that we're going to be the first generation in history to leave the next generation a planet that's worse off and a society that's worse off. And we're doing it deliberately because we knew better. We were told. We were told for 50 years that this is an issue and we just chose to ignore it. So we have to do better. Michael Mann, scientists are trained to speak from their heads, rationally, dispassionately, not emotionally. That's, oh, not scientific. But is there a time you've been moved to tears or you kind of you know, connect with your heart on this issue rather than the, the, you know, the cerebral part of it? Yeah, there, there have been numerous times. And, and, and sometimes it sort of hits you in a way that's very unexpected. You, you don't see it coming. And just everything comes together. All of a sudden, you know, you spend so much time... Um, dealing with sort of the down-in-the-trenches science of analyzing model output and looking at observations. And every once in a while, it all comes together, and you realize this isn't just a theoretical problem. This isn't just uh, an effort to communicate science to the public. What we're talking about, as John said, is the threat of leaving behind a fundamentally degraded planet for our children and grandchildren. Um, And how horrible would it be to, to know that that was our legacy? And I have a 12-year-old daughter, and, and, and there are times when it, it, it just all comes together, and I realize that it's about her, and it's about her children, and, and what sort of planet um, are they going to inherit from us? Uh, we still have the opportunity to make sure that we don't leave behind a degraded planet for future generations, but the window of time, the window of opportunity that we have to do that is shrinking. If you're just joining us, this is Climate One, and that's Michael Mann, is a professor at Penn State University. You also have John Foley, who's head of the California Academy of Sciences. I'm Greg Dalton, and we're going to go to our lightning round, where we ask quick questions or quick answers of our guests today. The first part is I will mention a name or a phrase and ask for the first thing that pops into your mind, unfiltered and with complete disregard for what anyone will think about it. <laughs> Michael Mann, President Trump's White House science advisor. Um, non-existent. Yeah. Uh, John Foley, ExxonMobil. Uh, complicated. Um, yeah. John Foley, offshore oil drilling. Not a good idea. Okay, this is true or false. Michael Mann, the biggest heroes in your personal story are Republican. True. John Foley, many foods you love will be more expensive because of climate disruption. Absolutely true. Michael Mann, sometimes you censor yourself when talking to friends about climate change impacts because you don't think they really want to know the dark truth. Um, um, no. (laughs) (laughs) John Foley, your wealth and privilege will protect you from the worst impacts of climate disruption. 
mine or uh, general? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so. Um, yes. John Foley, you sometimes feel guilty about that. Absolutely. Michael Mann, true or false, you are currently suing the National Review and Competitive Enterprise Institute for defamation related to blog posts about you. That would be true. Uh, True or false, Michael Mann, you can summon empathy for a person working in a coal mine or on an oil rig to support their family. Absolutely. Last one, John Foley. Uh, The climate would be healthier if more 50-year-old white guys talked about it on stage and on radio. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess we'll see. (laughs) All right, that ends our lightning round. Let's give them a round for getting to that. Uh, John Foley, we've been talking a lot about the physical sciences. Climate is a conversation anchored in, in chemistry and physics and the models that people like Mike Mann study. I'm interested in the cognitive sciences and whether the, the California Academy mm-hmm. gets into that area about the science inside our head. Why aren't we getting this responding to these flashing red warning lights and why we process information and, and threats in the way that we do? Well, I, I'm convinced we've really kind of blown most of the climate change story uh, as an environmental community, as a scientific community. If you, there's a very common report, a lot of you should go look up if you haven't seen it, called the Six Americas Report. Some of you are nodding. and It's really kind of amazing. It talks about there are six different kind of uh, zeitgeists in America, different groups of people, essentially, who react to climate change very differently. Uh, about 10% of Americans are vehemently, absolutely never going to believe this ever, ever, ever. That's only 10%. And there's maybe 15% who are like, oh, my God, we're all going to die on this side over here. That leaves about, you know, we'll see. But at least about 75% of us in the middle who are just hiding under our desk right now, hoping it'll go away. Because both sides are using fear as the message, whether it's drowning polar bears and Al Gore's movies or Leonardo DiCaprio's movies. That isn't helping. It's just showing negative images of how bad everything is without offering solutions. So I think we have to move from messages of fear to messages of hope. Not blind optimism, but hope. Hope is where you roll up your sleeves and get to work. And stop talking about the problem. If, if you haven't heard about the greenhouse effect by now, you're never going to hear it anyway. So talk about solutions. We have all the solutions we need right now. People get very excited about that. And I think talk more about collaboration as opposed to competition. It's not about Republican versus Democrat or companies versus small towns. It's about a better future. And I don't know about you, but I mean, you know, the team that's working on this includes, you know, Pope Francis and Michael Bloomberg and Elon Musk and Arnold Schwarzenegger and a lot of you. I want to be on that team. So I don't care what party you're in. So I think that's we have to reframe the narrative to grab the middle. Michael, man. John Foley talked about how powerless people feel, and a lot of the climate solutions are used to be change your light bulbs, change your diet. Do those things matter at all? So it's, I'm, I'm not an expert uh, on this, but I, I try to listen to what the experts have to say. Um, you know, there are these sort of no regrets things that we can do in our daily lives that make a little bit of a dent in the problem. And if everybody did them, um, it would make a bigger dent in the problem. But they're also empowering when you feel like you're doing something. Uh, I'm told by uh, colleagues I have who are sort of... Um, uh, are steeped in sort of the marketing and, 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 and public relations uh, side of the communication battle. And, and they'll tell you that if you get people to do something that 
uh, it can lead to greater actions. And pretty soon, they're doing more than just changing their light bulbs. They're writing letters to their congressperson. Um, they're getting out and voting. They're holding their policymakers accountable for representing them and their concerns rather than the special interests who too often um, you know, fund the, uh, those campaigns. So I, I do think that it makes a difference. But ultimately, if we are going to see the sorts of reductions that we need to see in uh, carbon emissions, we're going to need a price signal. We're going to need a price on carbon. We're going to need a market uh, mechanism to help steer the economy in the direction that it needs to go. And it's already going. We're already moving in that direction. But if we're going to avoid catastrophic warming, irreversible uh, changes in climate, um, we're going to need to move there even faster. And that means that we do need to sort of put in place incentives to help the market move in the direction it's already moving away from fossil fuels towards renewable energy. Um, and, you know, we need policymakers who are willing to to make the tough decisions and are willing to, uh, to, to vote for, you know, uh, climate policy. And we can only make that happen, of course, by showing up at the voting booth. Uh, John Foley, how do you talk to climate skeptics? Well, yeah, I'm related to some. Uh, <laughs> aren't we all, you know? Um, so, um, but I think, you know, you look at that 10% group and you're like, well, okay, you know, Let's talk about football. Um, but there's a lot of the movable middle. And I, I think, again, you know, don't talk about the evidence or the facts or the climate science, per se, because they've heard it before. In fact, climate skeptics tend to be more informed about climate, uh, climate news and information than climate believers on average. It just seems strange. And highly intelligent. Yeah, actually, yeah, that, that is true. It's just kind of strange. So it's not a disbelief of numbers that's getting in the way. It's a cultural thing. It's really like, I don't want the EPA regulating my pickup truck. That's what it is. You know, it's not about CO2 molecules or temperature graphs or even hockey sticks. That has nothing to do with it. It's about, it's who has power. Uh, if you notice the people who really are skeptical about climate change tend to be folks who disapprove of government exercising power over you. Whereas some uh, people, maybe on the more liberal end of the spectrum, really don't like uh, vaccines and GMOs sometimes because they think it's the corporate control over you. So I think science gets caught in the middle sometimes over your distrust of power. And I think when you just kind of get to people directly and say, hey, wait a minute, like that pilot you met, don't you believe your own eyes? Like, isn't this your everyday experience? I grew up in a really small town in rural Maine and uh, people there know like the ice fishing isn't what it used to be or the maple syrup doesn't come when it used to or hunting. I mean, everybody knows and so when you relate to people like that, it kind of helps. Michael Mann, does calling someone a denier make it harder for them to move away from that point of view and get out from underneath that denial label? So I think it's important to recognize that it's too easy to sort of end up blaming the victims, that many of those who, who do not accept the science of climate change are, are victims of a, a misinformation campaign, of a, a disinformation campaign, and we should view them in that light. Um, and, you know, the, the, those who are actively, who are intentionally denying established science, well, I won't call them a skeptic because, you know, all good scientists should be skeptics. Skepticism is, is a good thing in science. It's the self-correcting machinery of science that Carl Sagan talked about. Um, and what, you know, those who know better, who, who understand that there is overwhelming evidence, but nonetheless are doing the bidding of special interests in trying to create, uh, to sow doubt and confusion, um, well, we can't call them skeptics. And if they are denying basic science, then, you know, 
if the shoe fits. Um, what I find uh, unfortunate, especially uh, as somebody with uh, Jewish ancestry, I've heard the argument made by climate contrarians that this is an effort to somehow uh, tar uh, climate change contrarians with uh, Holocaust denial by calling them you know, climate change deniers. And uh, I, I actually find that offensive at some level, um, the argument that, um, that in some way uh, you know, I and my fellow uh, climate scientists would be trying to belittle um, the atrocity of, of Nazi Germany when many of us, you know, had family members who who died uh, in that atrocity. Um, no, it's actually a formal term. You can actually, you know, uh, look, go uh, look at the science citation index. And in psychology, there's a field of denial. And there are articles in leading scientific journals like Nature Climate Change that talk about climate change denial. It is a phenomenon. So I, I do think that there's a danger. We're balancing two things here. I'm sure some people will be offended by not being called skeptics. They want to think of themselves as skeptics. But if we call them skeptics, if we allow them to sort of wear the mantle of, of scientific skepticism, if we allow them to present themselves as modern-day Galileos when they're anything but, it actually creates the notion um, among onlookers, uh, among the public, that this is a credible position, that it is a defensible position, that we should have uh, a climate change contrarian on the stage with a climate scientist at an event like this. This is Climate One, changing the conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment. You can listen to all of our programs and subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org. Greg Dalton's guests today are climatologists Michael Mann and Jonathan Foley of the California Academy of Sciences. Let's go to our audience questions. Welcome to Climate One. Could you just go back to talking briefly about the satellites? Because my understanding is that the U.S. has uh, decreased funding and therefore canceled some of the planned uh, climate satellites. And if we're not collecting that data, is anybody else doing it? Michael Mann. Well, uh, my, my friend, your governor, Jerry Brown, was unable to make it to this event tonight, but I do remember um, him saying about a year ago uh, when he heard that uh, you know, Donald Trump was going to defund these climate satellites, and I've, I've spoken to him enough to sort of, I can actually do Jerry Brown a little bit. Uh, <laughs> we'll, f we'll put up our own damn satellites. <laughs> um, <laughs> and... And there are entrepreneurs. There was some talk about, you know, Silicon Valley, um, you know, uh, tech millionaires and billionaires trying to step in. Um, that still is on the table. The, the threat that we will discontinue, we will see discontinued certain essential uh, modern monitoring uh, satellites. And as John said earlier, uh, I think as politicians and, and stakeholders begin to understand that if we defund those satellites, that that means we're not going to have the capabilities, the weather prediction capabilities that we used to have, that when we have uh, a threatening Atlantic uh, hurricane bearing down on the East Coast or the Gulf Coast of the U.S., we won't have the information that we need to make skillful forecasts of the trajectories of these storms. There's a real cost that has nothing to do with climate change. Um, it has to do with basic uh, capabilities, uh, environmental prediction. Uh, I think as that 
discussion has proceeded. Uh, we've seen some retreat um, from these early sort of threats to defund these uh, satellite uh, systems. But, you know, we don't yet have an actual budget. And until we do, we don't know what the fate of these satellites are, actually are. Next question. Welcome to Climate One. How are we going to get to our climate change goals if we don't deal with overpopulation? My understanding is the carrying capacity of the Earth is only 2 billion people with an undegraded ecosystem. How do you, how do you think we're going to do that? Yeah, I mean, uh, population is actually not really the biggest driver of our environmental problems around the world. Uh, it is driving the biggest number of recipients of environmental harm, of course, uh, are often areas are growing in population are very, very poor. But most of the damage is caused to the planet in terms of CO2 emissions, land use, water use, and so on, are about 20% of the world's population, and it's the world's rich. Uh, so it's like people like us are causing the damage, but mostly it's the world's poor that are growing in number who receive the harm. So it's this kind of very complicated thing between our overuse of stuff and our bad kind of forms of technology and increasing the number of vulnerable people in the world. It's, it's, a, it's a wicked problem. So population would, is not the driver, okay. Not at all, all but right. it is the um, exacerbator of impact. Next question, welcome to Climate One. Hi, my name is Patrick Roddy from StopSprayingUs.com. Uh, I was reading chapter seven of your book on geoengineering, which is a very bad idea to, uh, to, to resolve the, um, the, the climate crisis. Um, have you looked at all into uh, the, the potential human health impacts? Any, any views on whether it's been deployed and, and your views on the human health impacts? Michael Mann, you explain what geoengineering is. Yeah, so geoengineering is the intentional manipulation of essentially the global environment. Um, and one might argue that climate change uh, is sort of the unintentional, uh, massive global scale manipulation of our environment. It's an accidental geoengineering. The title of... Uh, of that chapter in our book, uh, by the way, is geoengineering or what could possibly go wrong. So I think that perhaps betrays sort of my views in general about prospects for massive uh, technological interventions with a system we don't understand perfectly. Um, and there are a range of schemes that have been proposed uh, that um, range from shooting particles into the stratosphere to block out some of the sunlight and, and, and try to cool the earth back down. Um, when you look at some of the potential side effects of that, the unintended consequences, it turns out that sort of scheme um, could actually end up leading to uh, a drying out of the continents. You could cause some areas to actually warm even faster because of changing atmospheric circulation patterns. You would probably worsen acid rain and ozone depletion. And as you go down the list, with most of these proposed interventions, um, you know, the principle of unintended consequences really reigns uh, supreme. And certainly health impacts uh, are among those potential consequences. For example, the idea that we could fertilize the oceans um, by uh, putting iron into the oceans, fertilizing algae that would then take more of the CO2 out of the atmosphere. Well, as those uh, schemes have been studied more closely, it turns out, first of all, it would probably just lead to faster cycling of carbon in the upper ocean. It wouldn't take sort of carbon out of the system. And it appears that that might actually favor the type of algae that give rise to red tides. Um, so, you know, there are potential health consequences. I again, it's the principle of unintended consequences um, interfering with a 
system that we don't understand perfectly, and there is no planet B. <laughs> There's well, only one planet we know of in the universe right now that can support life. And just to clarify, <laughs> in geoengineering, there's a, maybe a few tests. It's not happening no. now. No. no, there have been some uh, local um, uh, tests, for example, al the algae uh, uh, iron fertilization. And uh, these are sort of um, uncontrolled, un uh, unauthorized experiments. And that's one of the dangers here, that we could see uh, these sort of rogue efforts to engage in geoengineering. And so, you know, there is, it is important to talk about it. Arguably, it is important to do the research, if for no other reason, so we can understand what the, the consequences might actually be. Let's go to our next question for John Furrier and <clears throat> Michael Mann at Climate One. Hi, my name is Wayne Roth. I'm an activist with 350.org. Dan Kamen, I heard talk at an, at an Actera event about three years ago, and afterwards I talked with him. He's uh, the used to run the Berkeley Sustainability Lab. Yep. He said, I asked him, well, what do you think that the global increase in temperature will be by 2100? And he said, five degrees Celsius. So I want to ask both of you, Given what we are not doing and all of the political problems we have and all of the denial and all of the difficulty, even of people who care about the planet, of actually making sacrifices and changes, what do you think the temperature increase will be by 2100? And what do you think that's going to do to our planet? And could you give specifics? Thank you. Five, five degrees Celsius, Mike Mann, that's pretty darn hot. We've had what, about one degree so far from pre-industrial warming. Well, as uh, Niels Bohr once famously said, uh, predictions are hard, especially about the future. So, uh, you know, it, you're asking us to predict human behavior. Um, ultimately, if you're asking us to predict the temperature, uh, you know, at the end of this century, then that involves physical science, involves the climate model projections. How much warming do you get for a certain increase in carbon emissions? But it's also asking us to predict human behavior. And uh, history is fraught uh, with uh, efforts to, to predict human behavior. I would actually argue that there are reasons for optimism, that we've of, uh, often been able to achieve uh, far more um, than than we would have thought. Uh, you know, the Apollo project. The uh, you know, when we set out to do something, um, it, it's amazing what we can accomplish as a as a civilization. And I actually think that we're going to get our act in gear. Uh, I, there is some evidence that carbon emissions were starting to flatten. Well, then they went up a little bit last year. Um, we don't yet know if that was a temporary burp or if we, we've come off that flattening. But there is some evidence that we've started to see that curve begin to bend downward. Now, just bending the curve downward isn't enough. We've got to bring those emissions down to, to zero pretty quickly if we're going to avert a disastrous warming uh, of the climate. Um, and so that means we've got to improve substantially, for example, on the commitments uh, that were made uh, at the Paris Accord. That gets us, Paris gets us about halfway to where we need to be if we are going to hold warming below two degrees Celsius. So if you're going to ask me, you know, what's the warming going to be by 2100? Uh, it's probably going to be more than two degrees Celsius, but it's going to be uh, less, a lot less than five degrees Celsius. We may miss the two degree exit on the off, you know, the two degree off ramp, but that doesn't mean we don't go for the 2.5 degree off ramp. And if we miss that, we still go for the 3.0 off ramp. 
um, we're not going to get to the five degree off ramp. Um, we're the, the real challenge right now is to see if we can keep warming below two degrees Celsius. It's still within the realm of possibility, but it's becoming a more and more uphill challenge with, uh, with each year um, where we don't quite meet the emissions goals we'd like to see. Yeah, I'd say, uh, sorry, just quickly add to that. I'd ask you, like, what do you want it to be? Because uh, it's, it's, it's our agency. Is we get to decide this still. And the longer we wait, the less decision space we have. But right now, two to five is on the table, all of it. And two is where I want it, or less, is still theoretically possible. I mean, if you don't believe me, uh, read Paul Hawkins' book, Drawdown. It outlines 100 solutions to climate change that if we actually implemented half of them, we'd be done. And a lot of them aren't in energy. A lot of them are about our food, our forests, our refrigerants. It's not just CO2. There's lots of other things that are warming the atmosphere. So actually, there's a lot more human agency here than you hear about. And I'm kind of tired of, you know, that feeling helpless. We are absolutely not helpless. We absolutely can determine this future. So you decide what temperature the planet's going to be, and then let's get to work. Michael Mann, as a professor, you, you uh, teach young students every day. What gives you hope about we're going to keep to this lower end of the spectrum of warming that you and John Foley talked about? Yeah, well, in part, it, it is the students. It is the energy and the enthusiasm that, that I see come in uh, to Penn State University every year when I teach my first year seminar course. And, um, and it's really it's a cultural transition that we're uh, undergoing right now. Um, and, you know, younger folks get it. They understand that the, the decisions we're making now about our energy infrastructure have long-term consequences for them and their children and their grandchildren. They're not yet in a position to really influence policy at the highest level, and so they need our help in, in the meantime. Uh, they, they need um, those of, of us who are in the, the mid-career stage to, um, to, to, you know, to do everything we can to make sure that we don't sacrifice those options in the meantime. Um, they get it, and when they're in charge, uh, we can be sure that the, the ship is going to be run uh, properly, but we have to make sure that we don't steer it into the iceberg in, in the meantime. And um, I'm optimistic because we are seeing a lot of uh, progress. California is sort of a, a shining beacon for the rest of, of the country, um, demonstrating that you can both uh, increase energy efficiency, lower carbon emissions, incentivize renewables and electric vehicles, and grow the economy at the same time. Uh, really, the only decision we have to to make right now here in the U.S. is are we going to get on board with the greatest revolution of this century, the, the clean energy revolution, or are, are we going to get left behind? Um, that's the decision that we have to make, and I, I'm confident we'll make the right one. We've been talking about climate science and communication with Michael Mann, professor of atmospheric science at Penn State, and John Foley, head of the California Academy of Sciences. Podcasts of this and other Climate One shows recorded with a live audience are available wherever you podcast. When you download one, please leave a comment or give us a rating. We want to know what you think about our conversations on food, energy, water, technology, and more. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time, everybody. Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel and Tyler Reed are producers. The audio engineer is Mark Kirshner. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy.
Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.